Father, uh, you're so good to us, uh, so grateful to be in this room with brothers and sisters in Christ, singing out your praises together. Uh, What a privilege it is to do this, Father, what a privilege it is to sit under your word, God, for me even get to, to preach this word, to get to say these things, it's a privilege, Father. So take this loaf of bread, and would you feed thousands this morning? Uh, feed thousands of hungry uh, spiritual souls, Father. It's something that we cannot do, and we rely on you to do this for us. God, uh, would Christ be high and lifted up this morning? Uh, would you let us get a, a, a glimpse of him this morning through your word? Uh, and may it have its healing effects Father, may it have, um, may it break rebellion, heal relationships, not just in this room, Father, but all across the globe where your word is going forth this morning. You promise that it will not return void, and we're trusting that, Father, that you do your work. Pray for Richard, God, as he's preaching in Raleigh this morning. Would your word have its effect there as well? Would you call laborers into the harvest this morning because of the word preached there? God, I think of our missionaries here around us in Spartanburg and then across the globe. God, those that, that are suffering right now, that are under persecution because they're faithful to the gospel, would you give them special favor this morning? Give them strength and give them comfort. Would you be their refuge and strength as any you can this morning? And may people be drawn to Christ because of their suffering. God, do your work in this room in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Peter 3, this morning, verses 18 to 22. I consider this sort of my part two of the last sermon that I preached in 1 Peter a few weeks ago. And I titled that sermon, Suffering for Righteousness' Sake, Better to Suffer for Doing Good. And so this is part two. And if you remember that sermon, Peter had this sort of thesis statement leading in to that that section of scripture where he said, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And the whole idea was this suffering for righteousness sake, that it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. And Peter followed this statement up with three motivations for us to live this way, three motivations for us to suffer for righteousness sake. And his first one was that you were called to this. We were called into this type of lifestyle. The very reason that we were saved was to suffer for righteousness' sake, just like Christ did. And his second motivation for living this way was that he told us that God is sovereign over suffering. That we shouldn't fear this type of call, this type of lifestyle, because God is sovereign over all of our suffering. He is in control of our suffering. And he ended that section in verse 17 with this bold statement, For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Those that suffer for righteousness' sake are right in the center of God's will, is what Peter was telling us in our last sermon. And so today, he finishes up his three motivations with this one, maybe the most important of all, that Christ suffered this way. Better to suffer for doing good. Why? Because Christ suffered this way. He even starts out verse 18 with the word for. Better to suffer for doing good because Christ also 
suffered. Christ suffered for righteousness' sake. So God is not asking us to do something that he was not willing to do himself. We are simply following the path that our Savior blazed for us in his suffering. If Christ was not exempt from suffering in this way, why should we expect anything different? If Christ, perfectly righteous, should suffer, why not us? Wasn't it Jesus himself who said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, will they not also persecute you? So as God asks us to suffer, we look to Christ. That's what we're here to do this morning. Look to Christ as we suffer. We look to Christ as our motivation and our comfort on the laborious road of suffering. It's hard, it's confusing, and Peter is giving us a picture here of what happens in our suffering and what's to come. It's a beautiful picture. Christ is our example, Christ is our motivation for patiently enduring suffering in this world. I love that Peter uses this word also here. It's a small word, but big comfort in this word here. Because what he's trying to say is that you're not alone in your suffering. Christ did this with us. He's not asking us to do something that he has not already done. So the point is clear. You are not alone in your suffering. Let's embed that in our minds. That we are not alone in our suffering. Because Christ also suffered for righteousness sake. Before I dive into the details of our text, I want to make some comments about the structure and the complexity of this text. Maybe you heard me read the text and you're like, whoa, you know, what, is, what does all that mean? Right? Talking about proclaiming the, the prisoners, spirits in prison. There's a lot of complexity here, but I want to, first want to do is talk about structure and sort of ground our minds in the structure of what Peter's trying to teach us, okay? So whenever I sort of hear an argument, especially when I'm reading the Bible, I'm always looking for structure. I'm just sort of built that way, prone to do that. And the structure I see when I'm going through these 18 to 22, I see this. Verse 18, Peter's topic is really suffering in a death of Christ. So you heard things like Christ also suffered, that Christ was put to death in the flesh. And then Peter transitions in verses 19 to 21 to resurrection. And so you heard phrases like, he was made alive in the spirit, that we're saved through the resurrection of Christ. Baptism is a big illustration in that section, indicating that when we come up out of the water, we're rising with Christ, right? So resurrection is our big topic in 19 to 21. And then he finishes with ascension. With phrases like, he's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God. Okay? So I want to ground the sermon this morning in this right here. Because a lot of us are stuck here. We're we're, we're in the suffering stage. We're stuck in verse 18. And Peter is pointing us to what's coming. He's pointing us to the resurrection. He's pointing us to the ascension. Peter is showing us the reality of what's coming beyond the suffering. This is the path that Christ took. We talk a lot about the path that Christ took in suffering, but this is where it led to resurrection and ascension. There is resurrection beyond the suffering. Not only resurrection to a previous state, as good as that would be, but ascension is coming. 
which indicates a higher level than our previous state. So if we suffer like Christ, we too will rise like Christ. We too will ascend like Christ. There's hope beyond the suffering. Peter leads us down the path from death in verse 18 to ascension in verse 22. From humiliation in verse 18 to glorification in verse 22. From suffering in verse 18 to vindication for that suffering in verse 22. This is the path that Christ went down. And this is the thing that Peter is pointing us to as we suffer for righteousness sake. So I want to ground us here. A lot of complexity, a lot of obscurity in this passage, and I don't want to get distracted and get all wrapped up in what does he mean here? What does this mystery mean? Maybe it means this or maybe it means that. The point is this, that in our suffering, there is hope beyond death, beyond the suffering. Just like Christ, there's resurrection and ascension coming. Here's the beautiful truth. I love how Karen Job, one of the commentators I'm reading, she says it like this. Even if we suffer an unjust death for the sake of Christ, it is both purposeful and victorious. That's saturated through this whole passage. Victory for those that suffer. Because death does not have the last word. That's what Peter's trying to teach us here. Death does not have the final word. I know it feels like it right now. In your suffering, you feel alone, you feel distant from God. But Peter is saying, remember Christ. He suffered, he rose, he ascended. So I don't want to forget this beautiful truth that's found in our structure this morning contained here. The interpretations of all the obscurities, they sort of take a back seat to this glorious truth. I'll deal with the complexities for sure, there's a wide range of thought here from scholars, theologians, and pastors on what this actually means. It's one of the most debated passages in the New Testament, even from the early days of the church. So in humility, we sort of have to say, be comfortable with, there's a little bit of mystery here. We might not know it all, but we do know this for sure, right? Even Martin Luther, who's like, normally very dogmatic in his opinions about what Scripture says, admitted this, this is a strange text, and certainly more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. And that should say Martin Luther. Um, I don't know why it says Martin. So, this is where we're headed. A glorious complex text that is saturated with the work of Christ done on your behalf. Saturated with it. And that's what I want us all to walk away with today. So let's dive into the text and first look at the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. So remember 17 said, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will for or because Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Again, the motivation is you are not alone in your suffering. Christ is a fellow sufferer. In fact, he is the pioneer of all Christian suffering. We too suffer because of sin in a broken world, right? We are similar to Christ in that respect. That we suffer because the world is broken and there is sin and we're suffering because of it. However, the text says that Christ suffered 
once for sin. Now this is very important for us to understand what Christ did for us. That he suffered once for sin. What does he mean when he says this? What, what, what does he mean when he says Christ suffered once for sins? Well, for sins means that suffering was the payment for sin. So think payment for this phrase. This means that sin requires payment. When an offense occurs against somebody, payment is always required, right? This is a divine truth, and it's a truth in our everyday lives. If, if one of y'all sideswipes my truck on the way out of here today, payment will be required. <laughs> Promise. Even if I would say, it's okay, you don't have to pay for it, you know, I'm going to forgive you, I would have to pay for the truck to get fixed, right? Even further, what if, I was like, I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I don't need to pay for it, I'll just deal with it, right? Even then, I am absorbing the cost, right? For whatever degree of satisfaction goes down in having a, an unbroken truck, right? However small or large that is, right? There's, there's, somebody always absorbs the cost, the payment for an offense. Whether it's the one that is offending or the one who is offended, somebody absorbs the cost. And this is true with God. How much more true is this when we offend the holy, righteous, sovereign God of the universe. How much more true is it? We have sinned and payment is required. Either you will pay for your sins in hell for all of eternity, or God will absorb that cost in himself. Somebody pays for sin. The good news is that God will absorb the payment in himself for sin for all those who believe in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. And this is what Peter means when he says that Christ suffered for sin. Christ is making the payment that your sin earned. Christ is paying off the debt that you owe God for your sin. And this is what Peter means when he says that Christ suffered for sin. But he also uses this word once. And this is meant, I think, to point us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was insufficient to cover sin one time, right? On a day-in and day-out basis, a year-in and year-out basis, they had to atone for their sins. But Christ came and changed that. Christ's payment for sin was so valuable that it only needed to be made one time. This is what the book of Hebrews tells us, that he appeared, Christ appeared once, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One time, one payment, debt payoff for sin. Christ did it. Now, although this is sort of turns our attention to the Old Testament sacrifice, sacrificial system, I think it should also turn our attention to the insufficiency of our own payment. You see, when you pay for your own sin, it's never fully paid for. And this is why, one of the reasons why, hell is eternal. Because that payment is never fully accepted by God. Whereas Christ's was. So have you ever wondered how, in a matter of hours, one man could drain the full cup of God's wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on you? One man, in just hours, 
was able to drain the full cup of God's wrath that's going to take an eternity to pour out on, on those who do not believe? And the answer is in the value and the completeness of Christ's sacrifice. An illustration, I think, will help us here understand the value and the completeness of Christ's payment. The national debt, according to the national debt clock, nationaldebtclock.org, you can go check this out. And this week, it was uh, greater than $23 trillion, the national debt. Let's suppose that you are responsible for paying back this debt. It's on you. Which, by the way, I timed it. It's called a clock because it just keeps going. And every five seconds, it goes up by another $100,000 because of more spending and interest. All right, so let's pretend that you have to pay this back. It's your responsibility. And let's just say you make $100,000 a year. Make $100,000 a year, and the debt's going up by $100,000 every five seconds. Will you ever pay this debt back? No. Right? It is, it is increasing at a higher rate than you have the ability to pay off. You will never pay this debt off in all of eternity. At a simple level, this is what's happening with our payment. The interest on the debt that we owe God for our sins is greater than the payment that we can make. So although we're paying for our sins, it's never fully paid for. Because the debt is so great. So in our illustration... Jesus' life is so valuable that he was able to pay off our $23 trillion of debt in one large lump sum payment on the cross. That's how valuable his life is. He paid our debt in full. One payment. His payment for sin was complete and final, not to be repeated again. Christ's life was that valuable. Not just paying for one person's trillion, $23 trillion debt, but everyone that will believe in Christ's $23 trillion debt. This crazy. To emphasize the grace of God in this, Peter adds this phrase. Just like, if that wasn't crazy enough... He says it was the righteous for the unrighteous. Like, it's not that we deserved this $23 trillion debt payoff. It's not that we were good people. We're unrighteous. And the good news of the gospel is that the the righteous, the only one that could do it, did it. He came for the unrighteous. The righteous died for the unrighteous so that the unrighteous could become righteous. That's what happened at the cross. That's the exchange that happened at the cross. All of our unrighteousness, Christ took on himself and gave us his righteousness. The righteous for the unrighteous. Look at the effect of Christ's sacrifice. Next phrase. He did this, suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. The only way to God. The righteous had to die. The valuable sacrifice. His suffering was purposeful and redemptive. It wasn't some accident. 
It wasn't like, good try, Jesus, but you died. No. This was the very reason he came, was to die for the unrighteous. And that's good news, because we're all unrighteous. Now, Peter makes a transition from suffering talk to resurrection talk with this final phrase here. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. And this is where hope dawns. Right? Things don't end in death for those that follow the same path that Christ did. Like Christ, we go from death in the flesh to life in the spirit. Death does not have the last word for those who are connected with Christ. So now as Peter sort of makes his transition into resurrection talk in verses 19 and 20, we enter the obscurity zone. Things get a little bit more complex here. What did Christ do in this state of existence as he was in the spirit? And so here we go. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What in the world does that mean? Well, there's three major interpretations that sort of have developed over church history. I'm going to hit on on them all briefly um, this morning. And the first interpretation is the most ancient interpretation and is um, the most sort of little, has the littlest biblical support for it, all right? And that interpretation is that Jesus actually descended into hell between his crucifixion and resurrection. This view rose not out of careful biblical study, but as an answer to questions like, what did Jesus do between his death and his resurrection? Right? Is there a chance that people can get preached to in the grave? And the answer is no. John Piper says of this uh, interpretation There is no textual basis in the New Testament for claiming that between Good Friday and Easter, Christ was preaching to souls in prison in hell or Hades. R.C. Sproul says of this interpretation, People are making a lot of assumptions when they consider that this is a reference to hell and that Jesus went there between his death and his resurrection. They say these things because this phrase here in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison This Greek word here, translated as prison, this is not the normal word for hell or death in the New Testament. Normally those words are Hades um, and, sorry, what's the other one? Sheol, we hear a lot, right? And then this prison, nowhere in the New Testament is the place of the dead translated with this word prison. So the biblical support is just not there. Think about the, the thief on the cross, right? What did Jesus tell the thief on the cross when he got saved? Today you will be with me in paradise, right? He didn't say, in three days after I make a quick stop off in hell, then you'll be with me in paradise. That's not what the scripture says. He says today. The thief was that day communing with Jesus Christ in paradise. So little to no biblical support for this interpretation. Interpretation number two is that Peter is speaking of the pre-incarnate Christ when he talks about... Christ preaching to the spirits in prison, that Christ in his pre-incarnate state was preaching through Noah to the people of Noah's generation who are now in prison because this is the New Testament, right? And what was he doing there? Or where's the biblical support? 
A lot of people point to 1 Peter 1, verse 11, that the Spirit of Christ in them, that's in the prophets, was indicating when he was predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. So the prophets had the Spirit of Christ in them, preaching to the, the folks of Noah's days about the sufferings and the glories of Christ. This interpretation has been around a long time. Augustine, Aquinas of church history, Piper holds to this one, Wayne Grudem, R.C. Sproul's. The interpretation is that Christ was preaching through Noah's lips to Noah's generation whom are now dead and in prison because of their disobedience. And we learn about the disobedience in verse 20. What did they do? They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The pre-incarnate Christ preaching to the people of Noah's day. Third interpretation is that this is simply a victory proclamation to the spiritual realm. That in the resurrection, Christ was proclaiming victory. Like, you guys thought you killed me, and here's my victory procession now out of the grave. Preaching, proclaiming to the spiritual realm that he indeed had won. Most modern interpreters stick to this interpretation. I'd read the list of names. It's a bunch of theology nerds. So they're the ones that write the commentaries. I lean towards this interpretation, not only because of the biblical evidence, but because of the sequence of events in Peter's argument. Remember, Peter is giving us motivation on why we ought to live in this way, why we ought to suffer for righteousness' sake. And he's saying, look, look at Christ. He, he's proclaiming to the spiritual realm the victory that he won. So although you feel that God's face is against you, vindication is coming. Vindication came for Christ. When Satan and all his demons thought they had him, he comes up out of the grave proclaiming victory over all the spiritual and demonic forces of the universe. I don't hold to the second interpretation, not because it's not biblical, but because it's difficult to get there with this sequence of events. Christ died on the cross, made alive in the Spirit. Why would Peter go back to the pre-incarnate Christ? Made alive in the Spirit is just a way of saying that he was resurrected. In his resurrected state, he's proclaiming victory over all the spiritual forces. He even fits the context because at the end of the passage, he goes back to these spiritual forces and says that Christ has been, they have been subjected to Christ because of this, because he's been raised to the right hand of God. Paul Colossians 2.15 said this, one of my favorite verses in Colossians. He says, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him or in the cross. I've taught on this verse before, and the idea is that Christ is riding into the city on his chariot in a victory procession, a parade, dragging his enemies behind them, putting putting them to open shame. That's sort of the idea that Peter is trying to convey to us, that this is a victory procession when Christ comes up out of the grave, that he's proclaiming to all the spirits that have been put in prison because of their disobedience that Christ is the victor. Yes, he looks weak on the cross. Yes, he looks disfigured on the cross. But his resurrection shows that he is the victor of the universe. The same Christ that we saw weak is the victor of the universe. His resurrection proves this. So this text oozes with victory and triumph and the conquering effects of the cross. 
It conquered the world. It conquered the demonic forces in the spiritual realm. So when Peter mentions the spiritual realm here, he sort of gets thrown back to the flood and we're sort of forced to think about what happened at the flood. He said when God's patience in the time of Noah waited while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the waters. You know what Peter's doing here? He's saying that the demonic world, what the demonic world saw at the flood is nothing compared to what is coming for all those who remain in disbelief. So what he's, what he's doing here is he's saying the flood foreshadowed what is to come. Peter is saying that the great flood and Noah's and God's ark's rescue plan was a foreshadowing of Christ. In fact, when Noah and his family were brought safely through the waters, Peter said it foreshadowed baptism. Right? You heard this read earlier. End of 20, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, it's a type of this, you, you, you get the foreshadowing from the flood. That now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that is a startling statement if we stop there, right? Baptism now saves you. If we stopped there and didn't have these qualifiers that Peter has there, we'd be preaching heresy. Baptism does not save. The scriptures does not teach this, and we do not teach this. If we stop here, this is false teaching. But Peter quickly qualifies this statement. It's almost like, I said this, I better clarify this, or else people will go astray here. And so this is how Peter qualifies this. The first statement he qualifies it with is, not as a removal of dirt from the body. It's not the ceremony of baptism that saves you, right? The water is not the instrument in our salvation. Water is not the thing that saves. Paul is most adamant about this in Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified, you're saved, how? By faith, apart from. Apart from baptism, apart from works, you're saved by faith. This is what Paul teaches, this is what the scripture teaches, this is what Peter teaches. Furthermore, I draw your attention to the thief on the cross again. Christ said he was going to see him in paradise that day. No baptism for the thief, but he was going to be with Christ, communing with him in paradise. So, the ritual of baptism doesn't save So what does Peter mean? Next qualifying statement. Not that, but as an appeal, some translations say pledge or answer to God for or from a good conscience. It's not the water that saves, but the response or the pledge of the soul. It's the response or the pledge of the soul to God from a clean conscience, from a good conscience, meaning that we can get up in front of people and tell them what we did because that's what happened in our heart. And now I'm going to go public with my faith. So it's not the water that saves, it's this pledge to God, a response to God, a demonstration to folks what happened to me in my heart. 
But Peter even goes further to help us and make this absolutely rock solid clear with this third clarification statement that is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see the two throughs uh, in 20 and 21? So Noah and his family was saved through water. You are saved now through the resurrection of Christ. This is how we're saved, through the resurrection. Baptism has a crucial place in the symbolic reenactment of what happened to your soul in salvation. It's a symbol of the covenant, much like my ring is a symbol of the covenant that I have with my wife in marriage. Baptism is symbolic of the covenant between you and Christ. We sometimes, like Peter, refer to the symbol as the thing that actually bonds us, right? In our weddings, we say the phrase, with this ring, I thee wed. And like Peter, we could qualify that. It'd make for a pretty terrible ceremony, but we could just qualify and say, well, not actually the the ring, because if I didn't wear it, I'd still be married, right? And and really, it's not the ring. it's, it's It's my pledge to you. It's my love for you is what is bonding us together. So Peter is not saying that baptism saves. So I, I'm glad I got through all that. What he's not saying, I want to get to the, the important part of what he is saying. Why in the world would Peter bring up baptism when he's talking about suffering? Why? Why, why talk about baptism at all when he's trying to motivate us to be like Christ and suffer for righteousness' sake. So remember what baptism is. It's a symbol, a demonstration of the spiritual reality of the new birth. Paul describes it like this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? That's the baptism Peter's talking about. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So why baptism when Peter is motivating us to suffer well? Going under the water is symbolic. When you you get baptized and you go under the water, symbolic of death. The waters of the great flood were God's judgment. The waters of baptism are symbolic of suffering and death and judgment. But what happens at baptism? You don't stay in the water. You come up. Coming up out of the water is symbolic of resurrection. Coming up out of the waters of baptism reminds us that death is not the end for us in Christ. Coming up out of the waters of baptism reminds us that because of Christ, we will make it beyond the suffering. That we too will rise from the suffering. That's why he goes baptism here. He's saying, remember your baptism. That's showing you a picture of what's going to happen. That's why Peter brings up baptism in the context of suffering. Remember your baptism. It points to the victory that is coming. Yes, you're going through the waters of judgment, but through the resurrection of Christ, you too will rise. You're going to rise up from the judgment. 
You're going to rise up from death. You're going to rise up from the suffering. And our baptism points us to that. Baptism reminds us that we will be brought safely through the waters of death. And any other lesser suffering, just like Noah and his family, were brought through the waters of the great flood. Isn't this just like God? Listen, the thing that is meant to judge everyone else is the thing that saves the elect. The water was meant to bring judgment on all the earth in Noah's day. But in a way, it's the thing that saved him, right? It's the thing that held his, the ark afloat. The very thing that was used to judge everybody else was the very thing that God used to save Noah and his family. The thing that's made to judge us, death, is the very thing that God uses to save us. Death is judgment on all mankind, but it is the death of Christ that saves the elect. What was meant to kill actually saves. We don't fear the waters of death because it's the pathway to resurrection and ascension. That's what our baptism points to. Outside of Christ, you go in that water, you're not coming back out. You don't get up out of his judgment. But in Christ, you go in the waters of judgment, you go through suffering, you go through death, and you get brought back up, raised to walk in newness of life. That's why Peter is going to baptism here. It reminds us of our resurrection and our ascension. Peter finishes up this motivation. Remember I showed you 18 was death, 19 to 21 was resurrection, 22 is ascension. Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is ascension talk. He goes beyond resurrection talk to ascension talk. Peter's point here is that for the suffering saints, God doesn't simply raise them to their former state of life, does he? Mm -mm. Like Christ, we too will ascend. You know, I accidentally uh, looked up the definition of ascension. I say accidentally because... I'm a terrible speller, and, you know, I'm taking my notes when I I saw the structure. I'm in a coffee shop, and I'm writing on my legal pad, start writing Ascension, and I get a little bit of, well, I don't know if I know how to spell this. I don't want people beside me looking at my paper and thinking, you know, this guy's a moron. So I Google, right? A-S, I think there's a C, there's a couple S's in there, and is it C-I-O-N or T-I-O-N? I have no idea. So I Googled it, and, the, and then, you know, when you Google, it gives you suggestions, and it said ascension definition, and this is what the definition read, the act of rising to a higher level. And so the thought occurred to me that Peter is pointing us to our future glorification as well. It's not simply resurrection. Yes, resurrection is coming, but glorification is the ultimate promise. Ascension tells us not only will our suffering end, but we will leave behind all weakness, all struggling, all weights, all burdens, all limitations of this former life. 
ascension is coming. We will rise to a higher, more glorified position in Christ and because of Christ. That's what's at the end of the road of suffering. Not simply resurrection, but ascension. This is what awaits all those who suffer for righteousness' sake. We, like Christ, will rise in a triumphal ascension and be with him where he is now. Your suffering will be vindicated. That's the promise of 1 Peter 3, 18-22. Your suffering will be vindicated. Christ shows us this. Your baptism reminds you of this. We can faithfully endure suffering because and only because of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, you can endure suffering. It is better to suffer for doing good because of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is better to suffer for doing good. Let's pray. Father, we don't deserve this. We don't deserve a, a payoff of that amount of our debt. Uh, we don't deserve resurrection. We don't deserve ascension. But in your grace, in your mercy, in your goodness, in your love, you've seen our sin, you've seen our unrighteousness, and you still sent the righteous. Oh, Father, would you let us know and understand this more clearly today than we ever have? Would you heal spiritual blindness? Let everyone in this room, Father, see the glorious truth that the righteous died for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There's a way back to God. There's one way, and Christ made it. God, would you let us understand this? For those of us that already believe, God, would you let us see it more clearly as it will help us endure suffering? We want to suffer well, Lord. We don't want to quit in doing well. So would you use this word this morning to help us persevere in our suffering? Thank you for the symbol of baptism. God, if there's someone here that has never uh, publicly showed what has happened in their heart, what you have done for them in their heart, God, would, would you use this word this morning to move them in that direction, to unashamedly proclaim what God has done in their heart from a good conscience. Oh, Lord, and we'd all celebrate that again and again and again and again, being reminded of our own resurrection from the suffering and from the judgment. So thank you, Father. For Christ, uh, may he be high and lifted up and people drawn to him in Christ's name. Amen.